Most gracious Father, we thank you for your word. And we recognize, Lord, that your word is inerrant, that it is infallible, that it is inspired, that it is your very word given to us in order to instruct us, in order to correct us, in order to train us in works of righteousness. And so, Lord, we thank you that your word speaks so clearly on these issues. And we ask that as we come to your word, you would use this study time to teach us, to correct us, to convict us, to train us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, you will want to be in Romans chapter 3. Um, today we're going to actually be continuing a study that we've been doing for years. Um, a study that we do on the final Lord's Day of each October for the past few years as we celebrate the legacy uh, of a movement that we are a part of, uh, a le- uh, the legacy of a movement that we refer to as the Protestant Reformation. Now you might remember, or, or maybe you don't, uh, but you can surely gather it from the name that when you talk about Protestantism, uh, the very indication of that word uh, is that we are protesting something. We are standing against something. We are refusing to comply with something. So what is it that we are protesting? It's good to be reminded because the protest continues. Uh, We're essentially protesting the apostasy of the Roman Catholic Church. And guess what? They're still, yeah, against us too. They still consider us to be apostates as well. In fact, as I was preparing a sermon for our John series just a couple weeks ago, I was doing some research on uh, on ancient heresies, and I came across a website, catholic.com, and found Protestantism on this website in the list of heresies that have officially been renounced and anathematized uh, by the Roman Catholic Church, and which continue to be Uh, viewed as apostate and anathematized. Uh, So to this day, uh, if you were to look it up today, this is what it says. It says, quote, Protestant groups display a wide variety of different doctrines. However, virtually all claim to believe in the teachings of sola scriptura, by scripture alone, the idea that we must use only the Bible when forming our theology, and sola fide, by faith alone, the idea that we are justified by faith only. And I got to say, um, I was kind of shocked to see us on there. Just I, I wasn't expecting it to be seen as, as a heresy necessarily, but I guess I at least appreciate the honesty uh, that, they, that they give us of our position in their assessment. But any time that you have differing views on a theological issue, what do you do? What do you do? Well, I guess it depends on which side of the debate you're on, but it seems to me that Scripture alone has the authority to be the final arbiter of truth. But that's the Protestant position. Uh, That's the doctrine of sola scriptura. A Roman Catholic would say that we should consult the traditions and the judgments of man and sacred Scripture. The problem with that is that you can't put anything up to Scripture and say these things are equal. You can't mix anything with Scripture. There is nothing that we can hold up to Scripture and say, whatever it is, this should have the exact same authority as the very Word of God. And so thus we started uh, this study a couple years ago by looking at the doctrine of sola scriptura, because as soon as you say that something else is equal to scripture or as authoritative as scripture, you actually make it more authoritative than scripture because it will shape our interpretation of scripture. See, we aren't saying that uh, the tradition and the judgments of man are, are necessarily bad or uh, necessarily even wrong. I mean, Protestantism, uh, Protestantism itself is a tradition. Uh, what Protestants affirm, however, is that traditions and creeds and councils and the judgment of man are authoritative only insofar as they align with what Scripture says. So we recognize that while Scripture is infallible, that is, it cannot 
error. It cannot have mistakes in it. Uh, It's infallible. We understand also that man's understanding, man's traditions, man's wisdom are all fallible. It's all prone to error. And so, it must be constantly measured against God's holy word. God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. But the Catholic.com website correctly pointed out that there was a second issue of contention. The first one is a significant one, Scripture alone. That is a huge point of contention. But the second one is perhaps even more significant, and that is the issue of justification. When we're talking about justification, we're talking about how a person is saved, how a person is declared just in the presence of Almighty God. And honestly, I can't think of a more important issue than that. Can you? I mean, when we're talking about justification, we're talking about eternal salvation. We're talking about God's pronouncement that a person is just, that a person is righteous, innocent. The Protestant position on justification is that we are justified by grace alone. That's the doctrine that we studied last year for our Reformation celebration. So we're justified by grace alone, the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, according to Scripture alone. And the key word there is the one that you keep hearing me repeat. And the word that, uh, that, that I'm talking about, of course, is the word alone. That is the point of contention. Five letters have divided the Protestant church from the Catholic church for over 500 years. Five letters. Amazing. But that's where the difference is found. Between the Roman Catholic church and the Protestant church. The Roman Catholic view of justification and the Protestant view of justification. So today we're going to be looking at the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We've seen that salvation requires the grace of God alone, but the question is, how do we receive that grace? What's required of of me? What's required of you? What's required of anyone to take hold of saving grace? And as I considered which passage to base uh, today's lesson in, I was once again reminded that the doctrine of sola fide, the doctrine of, of uh, justification by faith alone, is found in, uh, in, in every one of the four Gospels. Uh, it's found in every single one of the epistles. In fact, you can find it in each and every book of the New Testament. And if you want to go beyond that, I would say that in one way or another, you can find it in every single book of the Old Testament as well. So every single book of the Bible, in some way or another, attests to justification by faith alone. But today we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 3, specifically verses 21 to 26, although we're going to be uh, reviewing uh, what, the, what it says up until that point. I mean, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is everywhere. But it's perhaps most clearly articulated, perhaps most concisely stated in these six verses. Chapter 3 of Romans, verses 21 to 26. In fact, New Testament scholar and author Leon Morris says this of the passage. He says it is, quote, possibly the most important single paragraph ever written, end quote. But in order to understand where this is starting or where this is going, uh, we have to see how it fits into the context of the whole letter that was written to the Romans. So he spent chapter 1, Paul spent chapter 1, explaining the universal fall and uh, subsequent guilt of humanity, how totally depraved we are, that we would suppress the truth about God in our own unrighteousness by nature, And that we would worship the creation rather than the creator. Human depravity would cause us to defy God with such animosity, with such hatred, that we would try to reverse the created natural order as men would have unnatural relationships with men and women would have unnatural relationships with women. This is all part of the consequences of the fall. And so between chapters 1 and 2, Paul demonstrates the need uh, for salvation for the Gentiles who deserve God's judgment. 
even though they don't have the Scripture. And the objection was, well, you know, how can you judge them if they don't have the Scripture? And Paul, Paul's answer basically was, their own consciences attest to their guilt because the law of God is written on their hearts. And then from chapter 2, uh, verses 17 to chapter 3, verse 8, Paul discusses the need of the Jews for salvation who had the law and yet always fell short of it. So he summarizes the conclusion from chapter 3, verse 9 to verse 20, that everybody needs salvation. Everybody is in need of a Savior because, this is what he says, he says, because as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. It's a desperate situation. Nobody is righteous. Nobody is good. And nobody even seeks for God. Nobody. By the way, what was Paul's authority that he's referring to here? That he, what's his authority that he's, that he's uh, pointing to in this universal assessment? It's Scripture alone. He's quoting Scripture. He's, te- he's quoting from uh, the Old Testament. He's not referring to the traditions of men. And we know that the Pharisees in that time, and Paul was a Pharisee, he was trained as a Pharisee, we know that they had all kinds of traditions which Jesus rebuked them for. No, he's, he's quoting from the Old Testament all the way through this passage. That's his authority. But that brings us to the conclusion in verses 19 and 20. You know, look at it with me. In verses 19 and 20, he says this. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who's that? It's everybody. Everybody's judged by God's law. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In other words, when God declares us guilty of sin, nobody has anything to say. Nobody has a point of contention. Nobody has an objection. His law clearly attests to the fact that everyone is guilty. The law condemns us all. We've all broken it more times than we could possibly count. And that's just before we're 10 years old. I mean, ever since then, it, it gets worse and worse. I mean, it, through, as we go through life, our hearts grow more bitter and more hardened against God, and so we sin more often. That's human nature. That's the way depravity works. We sinned more times than we can count. So what hope? could we possibly have if, if no one is righteous, if nobody is good, if nobody seeks for God? What hope is there? Well, our passage in verses 21 to 26 gives us the most succinct, the most precise reason to have hope that man has ever known. So let me read the whole thing for you, and then we'll break it down into digestible pieces from there. We're looking at verses 21 to 26. Paul says, But now, apart from the law... The righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus." So there are three words that we really want to be concerned with when we're talking about the issue of justification. There are three words. The first word is faith. The second word is justification. And the third word is works. Faith, justification, and works. How do these words 
fit together? What, what's, the, what's the formula that these words all should be uh, gathered in? I mean, that's, that's really what the question boils down to when we're talking about the difference between other views and the Protestant view of justification. What is the relationship between faith and works and justification? So really, there are, if you want to boil it down to the bare minimum, there are three different views. R.C. Sproul breaks it down to three different views. He points out that there's the Roman Catholic view, and the Roman Catholic view of justification is this. It's faith plus works equals justification. Faith plus works equals justification. So let's talk about that first. Faith plus works equals justification. Do you see any problems with that? I mean, there are a lot of problems with it, but uh, the, the problem that stands out to me is the most obvious one, apart from the fact that it isn't supported at all by the testimony of Scripture, is that the word works is really kind of ambiguous. And, of course, the Roman Catholic Church uses the traditions of men to fill in and to define what that entails. Uh, So what do they mean by that? Well, for the Roman Catholics, they're referring primarily to the administration of the sacraments. Uh, Of course, that would start with baptism. Uh, They do believe that one must be baptized to be saved. They believe that baptism literally washes away the sin nature. Um, They do believe that. And and of course, it also, for the Roman Catholics, it also includes the taking of communion, which they view as a means of justifying grace. As Protestants, we view it as a means of sanctifying grace in the sense that it doesn't uh, add to, um, to what Christ has done. It doesn't uh, actually give us literal uh, grace uh, to be declared innocent in the sight of God. No, what it does is it reminds us of the blood of Christ that was shed for the remission and the forgiveness of sins. And so it's a means of sanctifying grace. It's a means of, of growing us in Christ's likeness. Now they view it as a means of justifying grace, which is a huge difference. The, 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 the difference between justification and sanctification is absolutely huge. And when you get those two categories confused, you get bad doctrine. You get false beliefs. You get a false gospel. Justification is the declaration of a person's innocence, while sanctification is the Christian's growth in Christ's likeness. So the Roman Catholic view is that they literally receive an infusion of justifying grace when they take communion. And of course, they need to take communion regularly because between uh, the first time you take it and the next time you take it, you sin. And so that grace gets used up and you need more. You need another infusion of grace. Of course, there's also the issue of transubstantiation, uh, which is the idea that when when they take communion, the elements of the, the bread and the wine literally change substance. That's why we call it transubstantiation. They, they literally turn into uh, the body and blood of Christ, but we'll save this one for another time. Uh, but this is the view of uh, the, the Roman Catholic view of justification. Faith plus works equals justification. And the question that Martin Luther who was really the one who started the Reformation, the question that drove him to the brink of insanity was, how many works? How much do I have to do to say it's good enough? And the answer is that it's essentially a never-ending treadmill of works. If you want to be saved, don't fall, don't, don't step off the treadmill. And that's why they, they came up with the, the idea of purgatory as well. Because you'll have to pay for those sins because the work of Christ wasn't enough. You have to pay for your own sins. And this is ultimately what drove Martin Luther to start questioning the Roman Catholic Church. He realized that if their view is true, you can never know if it's enough. And thus you can never know if you're really saved or not. Also in his day... One of the works that, uh, that was being uh, very 
strongly promoted was the selling of relics and indulgences, uh, which were basically small uh, material things, uh, statues or pictures or pieces of paper or whatnot. And the, the purpose of them, the, the purchase, was ultimately supposed to be a means of justifying grace. So with the Pope's blessing, a man in Luther's time named Albert of Mainz was granted permission to sell these relics and indulgences uh, for the remission of past, present, and future sins. The idea, as Luther correctly understood it, was that people could buy their way into heaven, buy their way out of at least purgatory. You know, so people could, could buy their way out. You know, Johann uh, Tetzel was, uh, was a monk, was a, was a Roman Catholic priest who was uh, known for selling indulgences under the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. And he was famous for saying, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. What's the idea there? You're buying grace. Your money can buy somebody out of purgatory. So essentially, justification was for sale. So the first day of November is All Saints Day. And so that's why on October 31st, Martin Luther posted uh, his 95 theses, his 95 points of contention, if you will, as a means of protesting the sale of indulgences, and, and uh, that's just an, another expression of the idea that uh, faith plus works equals justification. He had no idea that what he did would start a reformation, a protest that would last for over 500 years now, 501 years now. But why do we celebrate Reformation Sunday then? It's because of this. It's because on October 31st, Martin Luther started what we call the Reformation. It marks the day when the war against this false understanding of justification began. And of course, if you have a false understanding of justification, ultimately, you have a false gospel. You have a false gospel. Because really, what's more important than justification What's more important than understanding not only our need to be saved, but how to be saved. So if you get this wrong, if you get the how part wrong, you have a false gospel. You have a gospel that doesn't save. And what did Paul say of those who preach a false gospel? They're to be accursed. Anathema. So the Roman Catholic view of justification is that faith plus works equals justification. A second view, which we won't spend a whole lot of time on today, but uh, it is good to make note of it, especially since in a lot of our churches uh, that you'll see in our culture today, this is one of the primary views being affirmed in Christendom. But the the second view, uh, you might say, is the antinomian view. Anti means against, and nomian means law. So the antinomian view of justification is that faith equals justification minus works. Faith equals justification minus works. In other words, it teaches that you can make something that might in some way resemble a profession of faith in Christ, but then you can just live however you want and sin as much as you want, and you never have to worry about the validity of your profession of faith or about the validity of your faith. Uh, Works aren't necessary for justification, right? And justification doesn't produce a change within the individual, according to antinomianism. And that is not a biblical idea at all. Justification does change the individual ontologically, meaning by nature they become a new creation. Antinomianism is a heresy that gives a false sense of assurance to unregenerated, unsaved, faithless sinners who are going to burn in hell for all of eternity if they do not repent and believe in Jesus Christ. 
the biblical Jesus Christ, who says that if we love him, we will obey his commandments. Antinomianism is a false gospel with no repentance, no obedience, no commitment, no denial of self, and has no cost to the sinner. And even the world recognizes how wicked and how corrupt that view is. The Roman Catholic view is that faith plus works equals justification. The antinomian view is that faith equals justification minus works. And that brings us to one final view of justification, and that is the Protestant view, our view of justification. The Protestant view of justification is actually seen very, very clearly in the passage that we're looking at in Romans today. This uh, Protestant view is the biblical view. Uh, That's why we believe it, right? The Protestant view of justification is that faith equals justification plus works. Let me say it again. Faith equals justification plus works. Martin Luther famously noted that, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. In other words, legitimate, saving, justifying faith will be like a fountain from which good works flow in the life of the individual Christian. And they flow necessarily. So let's look at what Paul says here in Romans chapter 3. Remember what he said in verse 20. He said that by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. That right there immediately refutes the Roman Catholic position. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Verse 21 is the antithesis. He's he's giving us the opposite. It's the antithesis of the idea that we can be justified by works of the law. Paul says in verse 21, apart from the law, as opposed to by the works of the law, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Glory be to God. Not only is the very righteousness of God required for a person's justification, but it has been manifested, it's been established, it's been made available, and it doesn't require the perfect keeping of the law to attain it. Matthew Henry notes this. He says, The brazen serpent, an image from the Exodus, The brazen serpent is lifted up upon the pole. We are not left to grope our way in the dark, but it is manifested to us. The righteousness that is found in Christ isn't just a partial righteousness that leaves the completion of it up to us, up to our works. No, it is itself a complete and full righteousness. It is the very righteousness of God himself. That's why when Jesus was on the cross, his final words were, it is finished. The work of redemption is completed in Christ. It's not something that we have to complete ourselves. Jesus didn't come to help us become more righteous on our own. He came to be our righteousness, and his is a complete and total righteousness. And Paul adds that this has been witnessed by the law and the prophets. Of course, he's referring to what? He's referring to the Old Testament. If you remember, Jesus said to his two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus in a state of despair because the the Messiah had had died and been buried and all their hope was gone, and uh, he starts explaining things to them. He says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So he showed them how all of Old Testament Scripture actually points to him and how he would fulfill all the demands of the law. So, great, the, the, the righteousness of God has been manifest. It's been lifted up to be seen, to be proclaimed, to be heralded and made available. But how do we get it? How do we receive it? How do we take possession of it and make it our own? Look what Paul says in verses 22 and 23. He says, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So this righteousness that's required for our justification is supplied entirely by Christ, and it's received through faith in Him. Now, what is faith? That's a valid question, right? Faith is belief. Uh, In fact, in Greek, faith and believe are the same root word. Believe is the verb form of the noun uh, faith. So faith is belief, but it's a belief. Biblically, it's it's a belief that acts upon what it believes. So you might say it is a trusting and acting belief. For example, why did you sit down on the chair that you sat down on this morning when you came in? I mean, weren't you concerned that it might fall apart? Weren't you concerned that it might be defective? Did you inspect it? Did you check it out to make sure that it wasn't already broken before you sat down on it? I I would imagine that you didn't. So why did you sit down? Because you believed with an acting belief that it would hold you. And that's what justifying faith looks like too. It trusts in Christ alone for salvation. If you think about the parable of the sinking sand, it's not having one foot on sinking sand and one foot on the solid rock of Christ. It is putting both feet on the solid rock of Christ. It is acting in accordance with what it affirms. It trusts in Christ alone for salvation. Look at verse 24. Paul says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So the grace of God as revealed, as manifested in Christ Jesus is alone the source of our justification. It's the grounds of our justification. And again, the key word there is alone. Alone. Christ alone, His righteousness alone is the basis, the grounds of our justification. As it's been said, you contribute nothing to your salvation other than the sin which made your salvation necessary. So we don't just rely partly on God's grace and and partly on, on how good we are inherently by nature. We don't rely on our merit to any degree because none is righteous. No, not one. And by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we see those things, we need to see, that's us. He's talking about me. He's talking about you. He's talking about how desperately lost we are if all we have is our own merit. All these things are pointing to the same reality. And that is, we can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. If by nature, all are fallen sinners, and we are, who are all under God's righteous wrath, and we are, and if there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, and we can't, because we're spiritually dead, and we are, then how in the world can anyone be saved? God must save us. God must put his righteousness in our account. He must credit his righteousness to us. And he must do something with our sin. We're going to get to that. The good news, as Paul says, is that we are justified by his, by God's, grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The point is that the source of our justification is found entirely outside of ourselves. The righteousness that is required for our justification is therefore what Martin Luther referred to as an alien righteousness. That is, a, a righteousness that isn't inherent to ourselves. That's not inherent within us. Secondly, the basis of our justification is found in the work of Christ. Look at verse 25 with me. Paul says, whom, and of course he's referring back to Christ who's named at the end of verse 24, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood 
through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. So we have to understand that only God is inherently, that is by the essence of his very nature, only God is righteous and just. And because he's righteous, he hates sin. And because he's a just judge, he must punish all sin. If God were to take the whole world, ourselves included, right now, and throw everybody into hell, throw everybody into a burning lake of fire for eternity to suffer his eternal condemnation against sin, it would be perfectly just. Because that's all we deserve. That's all our works have earned for us. And any time that we think that that isn't just or that that isn't fair, it only demonstrates how powerfully sin can twist our thinking. See, a just judge, we would all agree, can't just give a wink and a smile to a violation of a law. And if we can say that about a human judge, how much more can we say that about God, who is the only just judge who cannot sin, who does not sin? Because God is perfectly just, all sin, all sin, the big ones and the small ones alike, must be punished. His justice must be satisfied. And the justice of God was fully satisfied in the death of Jesus in the place who stood in the place of every ruined and wretched sinner who would repent, every ruined and wretched sinner who would turn from their own efforts to satisfy God's justice, to satisfy God's demands, and believe in Jesus Christ alone as the one who satisfied God's demands and who did something with our sin. He took it upon himself and he bore it in our stead. Christ himself fully upheld and fulfilled the demands of the law, never once sinning, never once stepping outside of the will of the Father. He alone is what Paul refers to here as our propitiation. And that's a weird word because you probably have never used this word in just your average everyday conversation at the water cooler at work. Uh, It's not used in a lot of places, but one author explains it this way very, very succinctly. He says this, he says, quote, it means turning away anger. And he goes on to say, in the Bible, propitiation is an act by which God's wrath is turned from us. The imagery is expressed in Psalm 85, which says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. That's verses 1 to 3. That's what propitiation is. The Greek word for propitiation uh, refers to what was called the mercy seat. And that was the lid of the, of the Ark of the Covenant. How could a, a holy God, a holy and just God, uh, restrain His wrath against an unholy and unrighteous people? Well, that's, that was the purpose of the mercy seat, which was the lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was the place where God's wrath was withheld from His people. Commenting on this, John Calvin said this, he said, God was propitiated toward believers by covering, by the covering of the law, so as to show himself favorable to them by hearing their vows and prayers. For as long as the law stands forth before God's face, it subjects us to his wrath and curse. And hence it is necessary that the blotting out of our guilt should be interposed so that God may be reconciled with us, end quote. So Jesus is that barrier that mercy seat. He stands between God and the person, the sinner, who has believed on Him for salvation, and He thereby satisfies the wrath of God. Because of Christ's work on Calvary, we're able to say that God is perfectly just and at the same time, the justifier of all who believe in Jesus. The phrase that Martin Luther liked to use was a Latin phrase, Simul justus et peccator. Simul justus et peccator. And simul is, we get the word uh, simultaneous. So at the same time, justus, 
just or righteous and a sinner. In other words, we realize that there are, in one sense, we are still capable of sinning, and we still do sin. And yet, in a different sense, at the same time, we are just. We are justified. So first, our justification must be based on an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Second, the basis of our justification is found in the work of Christ. And third, faith is the means of justification. Look at verse 26 with me. Paul says, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Both verses 24 and 26 show us that faith is the means by which even the worst, even the vilest, even the most wretched of sinners may receive forgiveness, may receive justification, may at the same time be declared just while still having a sin nature. And lest we boast in our faith and the fact that we have put faith in Jesus, we have to remember that even our faith is a gift from God, which is granted solely by grace and solely on the merit of Christ. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, talking about what he just said, this refers to by grace you have been saved through faith. It is all, in other words, And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, faith is something that is in us, something that we have to do apart from the work of God within us, apart from the grace of God working within us. If it's something that we must do completely on our own, it's a work. It's a work but it's not a work. It's not a work because faith equals justification plus works. Works were necessary for our justification, but the work that's necessary for our justification was completely fulfilled by Christ. So faith, even faith, is not a work. It's a gift from God. If it was a work, we would have every reason in the world to boast And if we have reason to boast, who gets the glory in our salvation? We do. We do. See, the doctrine of justification by faith alone should do a couple things to us. First, it should humble us. Because we have to see that it is a gift. It's not something we deserve. We we deserve the very opposite. We deserve condemnation. Every single one of us has sinned against God in thought, word, and deed. We do it not only by nature, we do it by choice. So every single one of us has only earned God's wrath. And so it should make us humble to realize that in spite of what we have earned for ourselves, God, in his own sovereign goodness, has reached down and pulled us out of the muck and mire of the world and said, you're mine. And I'm going to shower my grace on you. I'm going to lavish my grace on you. That's humbling. But it should also drive us to humble self-examination. What are you trusting in today for salvation? And what difference has that made in your life? Not only what do you trust in, but what what difference has trusting in whatever you trust in made in your life? Because if you trust in Christ alone, it leads to works. It leads to good works. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not by good works, for them. See, it's one thing to know that you can only be saved by trusting in Christ. But it's entirely a different thing to actually do it, to actually believe it, to have faith in Christ and to put 
all your confidence for salvation in Christ alone. I mean, Satan, think about it. Satan knows that salvation is found in Christ alone. He knows that. And guess what? Every single one of the demons knows that that's the way to be saved as well. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that if you acknowledge that justification, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, all that qualifies you for is to be a demon. So what is it that separates the justified from the demons? What is it that separates people with a head knowledge from people with a heart knowledge? The difference is demonstrated in a willingness to yield to Christ's authority, to obey Christ, to love Christ, to pursue Him and to forsake everything that stands in the way of having His righteousness and His very, His very presence with us as our own and to grow in His likeness. We need grace for, for all these things, but they are a reality in the life of every single truly converted Christian, every person who has faith in Christ. In other words, sanctification, the growth in Christ-likeness, is our evidence of justification. As Christians, every single one of us is instructed to profess our faith, aren't we? We're instructed to profess our faith, and yet we must understand that while all Christians must profess faith, not all who profess faith possess faith. Think about it. Jesus quoted from Isaiah, warning that for some they would honor the Lord with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. He warned that many would say, Lord, Lord, and that His response would be, who are you? I never knew you. See, it's one thing to know that you're saved or how to be saved. But it's another thing to believe it, to actually put biblical faith in it and to have a faith that acts, that trusts completely. And the challenge that we face is to believe it so fully that we don't mix it, we don't even try to mix it with our own works or with our own sense of self-righteousness or with our own obedience or even with our own personal holiness or growth in in things like piety, personal piety. So my personal hope and prayer today is that as you consider the words that the Holy Spirit has given to us through Paul's pen in this passage, that you would believe. That you would believe and find rest for your soul in the finished work of Christ for our justification. If you'll do that, the guilt and the shame of your sin will be removed from you. We have a doctrine called double imputation, where Christ's perfect righteousness is credited to us, and our sin is credited to Him. And He bears the wrath of God against that sin in our stead. What He earned with His perfect obedience to the will of the Father His own perfect righteousness will be laid on you if you will put faith in Him. Alone. Not on yourself. Not in your works. Not in anything that you do. You don't need an infusion of righteousness. That's the Catholic doctrine. You need Christ's perfect righteousness imputed to you. Credited. Transferred to you. And for your sin to be credited to Him. Friends, it is so important that we get this doctrine right. John Calvin rightly noted that without this doctrine of justification by faith alone, quote, the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion is abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. End quote. This is the heart of the gospel that we're talking about here, that we receive the grace of God by faith alone. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. The only way, the only way to have the blessing of eternal fellowship and right standing with God is to be justified 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Our great Father, we thank you for a day when we can remember how important this doctrine is. And we continue to pray for the Roman Catholic Church to come around on this issue and to see that nothing is as authoritative as your word and that your word clearly declares that our works are like filthy rags to you. The best we have to offer is offensive to you. Only the righteousness of Christ is acceptable and pleasing to you. And so we thank you that in your eternal wisdom, in your goodness, in your love, you have placed his perfect righteousness on us. That we, though we are sinners, though we would be led astray by our flesh, might be declared just in your sight. What a great gift. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would embrace this truth and would live out this truth in humility and sincerity, in obedience and piety, that we may be pleasing to you, that the works that you have prepared beforehand for us to do, we may walk in all by your grace. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace which is found in Christ Jesus. Thank you for dealing with our sin in our stead. That it would not be on us, but that it would be on you, Lord Jesus. And that you would take it as far as east is from the west. And that we would have your righteousness. May you be glorified in our lives as we profess a legitimate saving faith based entirely on the work and the merit of Christ for his glory. And in his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.